Empathy is knowing our own dark Words have power. Like Without they that have connection, you don't have anything. What's the opposite of addiction? It's freedom. Well, hello again, everybody. Welcome back to our favorite time of the week. It is Finding Peaks episode number one million, because I'm an excellent Ish. counter. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, joins today again by my faithful team and counterparts, Jason Friesma, Chief Clinical Officer, LPCLAC, all things, all the things, yeah. all the things clinical. Clint Nicholson, <laughs> LPCLAC, all things clinical, but more operations. More operations. Yeah, Chief Operating Officer. Absolutely. Welcome back to the shtick. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Sometimes we do I here. I think that one of these days you're just going to forget my name. Yeah. You look at me dead in the eye, like you look lost. I do panic sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do I do I call you what I norm, what I call guy. you in passing? So this guy. So what we're <laughs> what we're going to talk about today is because we know everything about everything. That's what makes For us sure. great in our jobs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So big yeah. statement. High bar. But a true bar. statement. Yeah, absolutely. We only live at that level of a high bar. Certain circles, it's very good. Is what it takes to be a great therapist. And what does that even mean? Because you go to every addiction treatment website, every psychiatric clinical psychologist website, and everybody can do all the things. That's why we go to school. That's why we get master's degree. But it turns out you have, say, let's, let's use like a benign example. Sometimes you just get bad physicists. They're good in their academics, and they step outside, and they're not great engineers. Yeah. I don't know. But some of them are better. Yeah. There's Albert Einstein, and then there's yeah. other people. Only you would use physicists. Stick with me. I, didn't, I actually didn't prepare for this metaphor. It's just top of mind. But the way that I think we should start with this is, because uh, you guys know I've been talking about this book yeah. for like three weeks now. Uh, the Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, uh, Dr. Perry is the author, MD of that book, and I think what's really important about the book and its timeline is that Dr. Perry starts with like, I'm a doctor, awesome, I'm a psychiatrist, and now I'm in front of my first patient and I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter everything I've learned, now I'm looking at this child who's really suffering from neglect and abuse and trauma and all this stuff, and I literally don't know what I'm doing, and I think that's a good you know, kind of starting point to this as well as, you know, we can pull in some Dr. Yalom stuff as well too. Um, wrote, I think, more famously, The Gift of Therapy. He's written a lot of things. Says he's not doing philosophy, but he is. Um, <laughs> just want to get that in case you're watching Dr. Yalom, yeah. in case you're there on the, the Facebook watching <laughs> us right now. Uh, but in The Gift of Therapy, in the beginning of it, it says, I'm treating mid to high functioning individuals. And what I love about that is it's so easy for in my experience of clinicians, to quote that book, Six Ways to Sunday, at the same time, when you read that book, he spent like the first 30 years of his career in research, geriatric care, psych wards, substance abuse. He did all the things. And then he arrives at this moment to meet with mid to high functioning individuals and delivers these awesome therapeutic interventions. The takeaway from both those books is there was an incredible time period to get into a position where they were like, I think I kind of got this. Mm -hmm. Yet, at the same time, one of the universities down the road from us here in the Springs releases people into the world, go in right into private practice. And that seems like a fundamental error of the systems because what the books and all these great writers are telling us is time matters to deliver good care because the experiences matter. 
And those experiences inform how to make right diagnoses and not to make wrong diagnoses and not to look at somebody and think of their behaviors as ADHD when it might just be behaviors resulting from a traumatic episode, resolve the, trauma, the trauma, the neglect uh, through therapeutic interventions and maybe the ADHD looking stuff kind of goes away in that regard. So um, I think that's, that's a big deal to me uh, because I think there's this other language of, um, oh gosh, what does our friend Michael say about this? Uh, we, with, uh, we're kind of like feeding new professionals like to the wolves when they come oh, in yeah, and say, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you got a we degree. We eat our young. Yeah, yeah, we eat our young within yeah. this industry. We say, okay, you're pumped, you're 26 years old, got your master's degree, your LPCC, working on your hours, here's some patients, there's yeah. only five of them, you're gonna do great. And then at the end of it, they're like, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm getting burnt out, all of this sort of stuff, right? So we have this tendency as an industry to eat our young. And I think that speaks to a couple of things, right? The lack of you know, maybe professionals actually available to treat this, so we require all of the youngins to come in and really perform this work. And so, you know, just painting a picture of how our systems are kind of disruptive of this process and not allowing time to really arrive at what might be a Dr. Perry, MD psychiatrist, um, knowing what they're doing, and a Dr. Yalom in those sort of ways. So um, with that introduction, long-winded. Thorough. But thorough. Yeah. Where are we at with this? Place. Like, how much of that, in your guys' view, matters? Because, Jason, I think you've been doing this since, like, 1906, yeah. you since 1972. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Those numbers, again, great with numbers. Yeah. yeah. Our guy. Yeah. Yeah. Good physicist, <laughs> bad physicist. Good mathematician, <laughs> bad mathematician. Yeah, I think, you know, I think you said, I mean, you said a lot, Brandon, but uh, <laughs> one of the first things you talked about was Dr. Perry going to his first session and being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And to me, that alone uh, is fundamentally a great start to yeah, his a career. Really start, for sure. Is, uh, having that awareness that, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so, you know, when we were talking about um, doing this topic uh, today, or after you told me this is what we were talking about. Um, the first thing is that ability to know yourself. Um, because if you don't know yourself in, in the therapeutic relationship, then you can't tell where the client is. Like, you can't see where, their prob where your problems end and theirs begin or whatever. Like, it, it creates this baffling mess. So at least Dr. Perry knew that, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but I, in, you know, having read... Uh, some of Dr. Perry's work, like this guy's deeply empathetic and uh, very knowledgeable um, a, a, about psychiatry, particularly. But he seems to hold tremendous space for people that are really suffering. And so, uh, you know, that that piece isn't as trainable. So I'm confident that when he sat down with his first patient, and uh, he at least had that piece with him, like he knew how to like meet a human where they were mm -hmm. and understand that he didn't know what he was doing. No, I, I think, yes. Oh, thanks. Well said, yeah. Uh, the nicest thing you've ever said on this show. I'd like <laughs> really to mark well, the time, please. I wanted to show my empathy yeah. and display my therapeutic skills. Yeah, yeah. good job. Uh, thanks. Good job, Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think humility is to kind of piggyback, piggyback off of that. Like, if you are not humble in uh, your awareness of how little you know, then you're not going to go very far. And I think that the master's degrees, and to be fair to you know, all of the, the universities and colleges in the Springs, like 
I, I think most master's level programs do not train counselors to go into agency work. They don't train them to go into the trenches. They train them to go, again, into these sort of private practice, like worried well kind of fields. And um, it's, it doesn't do the student any favors. You know, like if, if you need to kind of be prepared to go to battle when you leave, because uh, I mean, my, <laughs> I mean, I went to a small, a small college down in, uh, you know, the San Luis Valley, and my professors were very clear that you will leave here learning just enough to be dangerous. And that was sort of the <laughs> mantra. So it was kind of instilled in me, like, you have to leave here knowing you know nothing, mm -hmm. or else you'll never be okay. You'll never be good enough at this job. And to move, uh, and to speak to what you'd kind of mentioned earlier, Brandon, like if you move straight into private practice or even a small practice, you're, what you're missing <coughs> are, are those opportunities to cut your teeth as a therapist and really learn what it means to, to be in the trenches of the kind of clinical world, um, which is where you just get, you get good out of necessity, you know, because in the end you, you get real. Mm -hmm. You find yourself and you learn how to bring your genuine person into the room with you so that you don't show up as a counselor, you just show up as a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the, I, would, I would encourage all viewers to, uh, with a companion, I think it's also a lot to uh, download. I spent, as I've shared with both of you, at least a half hour crying with my wife about all of the stories I felt like I was holding on to uh, within the book and not being able to describe them or share them with other people. It is deeply intense, but the takeaway from it is like the, the folks that we're treating at Peaks Recovery Centers at any given time are, uh, we look at it through the lens of just these people are suffering and it's our job to figure out where that suffering comes from and deploy interventions that lead to, uh, you know, a renewal of themselves, their energy, their relationships, um, you know, their jobs, their careers, everything along the way. Uh, but at the same time as well too, um, you know, we have things that I think are like in the way of this. You know, and I'm curious from your guys' perspective, when people launch out, how reliant, you know, maybe you think that individuals are on, say, like the DSM-5. Um, I heard from somebody in this industry that this is an objective book. It gives us all the objectivity, so that's great. So we can resolve all things through the DSM-5. Uh, sarcasm to that person. Uh, these are descriptors, not objective views of subjective individuals. But that said, to bring the audience a little closer to it, and move my sarcasm aside, it's like, well, if you have to, there are, there are 12, 11 or 12 pieces, right, that would define a major depressive disorder, descriptors, right? Yeah. So you could have an individual with one through six and an individual who identifies with the descriptors of seven through 12, you could have a one, two, three, five, six, and an individual with a four, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. I've just described three individuals with a major depressive disorder who shared no symptoms um, mm -hmm. or no, uh, no, you know, one symptom equals this, two, yeah. three, four, yeah, five, yeah. six, or whatever. And that's what makes it non-objective. So it seems like we could rely on something like the DSM-5 and those descriptors and make a ton of fundamental errors when we're looking at the individual, maybe because we lack curiosity. I'm curious, I guess, for the newbie coming out of school, how reliant they end up becoming on these types of things to deliver care. Um, and if there's a tripwire there that we should be you know, kind of acknowledging within... Um, you know, counselors coming out of schools in that way of things because they don't have the experiences. So they're looking at an experience and then what informs them about that? Is it that or are we doing something even more harmful and just making things up? I'm curious like how you were trained on the DSM when you went to 
to school. Because when I went to school, it was actually when we were writing the frown, DSM. Yeah, when you the yeah. first DSM, <laughs> DSM point zero five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. When I went to school, like we were actually almost encouraged to not diagnose, which to me is the other end of the danger zone. Uh, it was not about, there wasn't a whole lot of training on how to accurately diagnose somebody or even what that meant. It was mostly, um, I mean, that, that was my experience. I don't know what yeah, no, it was. I think my, my diagnosis class felt pretty perfunctory. Like they had yeah. to do it to be KCREP accredited Absolutely. or whatever. But, yeah. um, you know, like there, there's this intersectionality of like, you know, Yalom, I think, does a great job kind of capturing the art of therapy in so many ways of like, you know, just talking about these beautiful interactions with people and, and, and his empathy and his interventions uh, are just so uniquely Yalom. Um, and it's just him being him. And, um, and then we have kind of the medical and the science part of it. And, and I do think, you know, like the DSM, I think it can be helpful to describe constellations of symptoms, if you will, um, because it helps us make sense of things like words matter. We've talked about that on here before. Um, but then, you know, like clinically, like when I'm sitting in front of everybody, I'm not like thinking through, like I'm just dealing with depression here or anxiety, like I'm dealing with a human. Yeah, and but I also think that we kind of have a tendency to jump to Yalom before going through the, all of the, the medical stuff. Like you need those guidelines, I think. It's, I, I have a few, I think- Do you wanna bicker about this? Yeah, I do. I think, I, I think okay. our field really glamorizes the whole like, I'm gonna bring my genuine self and I'm gonna have all these cool interventions and I'm gonna be really special and unique. And, and you miss the point where you actually have to know how to do your job. Like you actually have to know okay. what the DSM is. You have to know what the criteria are. You know how to use them appropriately. Like it's not, that is not the answer. I mean, I could describe people that can get really nuanced in their diagnosis too. Absolutely. And it had every yeah. modifier on there and this really <laughs> yeah. beautiful constellation of diagnoses that are also are very just nothing, yeah, really, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I, I get you. I think, I think we talk, I think we just live on the extremes of those. Yeah. Living on the extremes really of tales. either of, yeah. that, of that spectrum is, is kind of nonsensical. It's really, there's this middle ground where everything kind of coalesces <clears throat> together. Yeah. And, and I think for the new therapist in particular, the new counselor, just making sure that there's a solid foundation and again, like that's what you're talking about, right? It's about those years in the field, those years in the trenches, where you really learn how to bring all of these different pieces together so that you can be unique, so that you can be creative, so that you can be nuanced in a way that is really efficacious for the client in the end. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, I, I came to Peaks from a private practice, right? I had a, I mean, literally four blocks from here, Never I had an office. I'm yeah, sure. I, don't, I don't mean to flex, but like, and, and it worked, and I saw clients, and I paid my bills, and it yeah. was a good gig. Um, but really, uh, it, even then, and I was, you know, I was a seasoned therapist even then, and, but like, um, it, there's a growth process that's just exponentially steeper in agency work, even still, even being in this field, you know, for quite a while, as you pointed out, over 20 years, like the, I'm still on a, a tremendous growth curve, I would say, um, because of the agency Absolutely. work, because of my interactions with you guys and my interactions with other clinicians and other modalities and the presentation of clients and how much time we get to spend with them. And you sit in a private practice and you see client after client for an hour a week, you know, 
uh, seeing the worried well is what I called it. Um, it my professional growth kind of arrested for a while, I would say. And I mean, it, and I went to conferences and trainings and all sure. that, but it isn't the same as as being in this community of multidisciplinary teams and being around our physicians and and that sort of thing. So I'm 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 hitting something with you. I can, well, no, I'm. Yeah, I, you guys know me. I just love disrupting yeah. things, and so just let that ambulance pass. Yeah, probably going to right on time. take care of the worried well. The <laughs> when we say worried well, what are we stating? Like, what is it about that patient demographic that is worried well in a way that we would not say that in agency work? So, honestly, you know, that... It's kind of derogatory. Yeah, it, it, a little bit derogatory. Like, really, when I, when I would have to, like, do medical billing or, like, do my billing stuff, like, literally, sometimes there's this diagnosis called adjustment disorder, and that was oftentimes the only one I could find for them. And basically, that... Diagnosis just meant like you had some sort of change occur in your life and uh, your ability to deal with that change is maybe not as uh, robust as other people's. Yeah. And, but it was kind of this throwaway diagnosis that just meant like, it, I mean, it, yeah, life got a little hard, yeah. struggling, and you haven't been able to figure out on your own. Oh, to get over your it. husband isn't talking to you, so you, you want to come talk to me for an hour a week and talk about that you're making the same meals and you do the laundry and it's boring and you're not finding much meaning in life. Okay, but you're not gonna really respond to any of my interventions. You're not gonna do the things I ask. You just wanna come tell me that once a week. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you'll pay me for that. And, it, and um, I just didn't find it super fulfilling. Don't get me wrong. I, had, I also had great interactions with clients. Like there were times when it was um, phenomenal, but I'll be honest with you, it took a lot of like, those were, it, it, I had to be pretty experienced, and I pulled a ton of experience from, from the other things I had done before um, to be able to engage people with that. Um, because I do think, um, I, I, I want to circle back around our overall question. I think what makes a good counselor, too, and in, in these, I don't mean these, I'm going to say some words that are going to sound like platitudes, but it's real, like to be genuine. Like I think somebody has to be genuine. Um, I think our clients, and I think even at any setting, people sniff out disingenuineness uh, so easily, um, and uh, and that's that takes time to nurture and to learn, and and I think it takes really good supervision um, to make sure that people are being genuine. I had a supervision uh, meeting today with one of the clinicians where I just had to keep probing and probing until kind of I found a genuine response. Uh, to this clinician's response to one of our clients, and like, um, but then once it was there, it was like, oh my god, yeah, I was out of out of my genuineness in that moment for sure. And um, but like that takes time, and and that takes time to nurture that, and to, and to figure out how to hold that space. Um, I think that is so important. Um, and obviously, other things would be uh, empathy is so critically important. And I and I love to quote uh, Pema Chodron, who says. Uh, the empathy is knowing our own darkness well enough to sit in the dark with another. And I think that that, that makes a great clinician that can just hold that space. I, I know I keep saying it, but like hold some sacred space with somebody as they are uh, going through something. Um, mm -hmm. And that is difficult because it's way easier to just say things, mm -hmm. <laughs> fill airtime, yeah. or interrupt that process. Um, I think that seems so key for me as well. 
I think we have, it, you know, what comes up for me here too is that we have, again, every, every you guys heard me a hundred times say this, every addiction treatment website promises the dual diagnosis stuff, we treat the major depressive yeah. disorder, we do the anxiety, we do the substances, we do all the things. That can only be true if the team underneath actually has the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there are always going to be, in an industry with 14,000 addiction treatment centers in it, not everybody under that hood is going to be in a position to treat these things. But back to the language of like this industry has a tendency to eat its young, it's because it's exploded so quickly, but we haven't really had the assets in place to deploy this. And so a couple of things, right, that would make a great clinician wouldn't be just being thrown to the wolves, but would be to have an infrastructure within uh, agency work that can actually mold, support, and help grow those individuals at the same time while also delivering the demands and the needs of the individual uh, within programming. And so out of this, just want to highlight uh, that we can be a, a down a stream here of a many nuances. Oh, um, and at the same time, this is quite complex. And you know, one of the things that comes to mind is I, you know, I hear families, you know, Colin Peaks and so forth. It's like, oh, well, the last psychiatrist like didn't get it. Um, you guys have a psychiatrist. Seems like your guys are going to get it. And let's we're going to do this right. We're just going to med manage. But like, there are limitations to what a psychiatrist can do at any given time. There are limitations to what medications can do. Dr. Alardi's episodes, uh, Dr. Ryan being on our episodes, Dr. Ashley Johnson. I mean, we've been very transparent about these limiting features. And clinicians themselves, though master's degrees, don't just walk out with all of the experiences in the world. Uh, yet at the same time, admissions teams are tasked with, yes, we can treat that. Yes, we have the LPC that can challenge the mental health and you know, deliver the intervention. Um, but back to the books, it seems like the only way to really fundamentally get this is to have these experiences in place. And not just experiences, but experiences that were challenged and informed in real time, because you can have all the experiences in the world, but if your only supervision was somebody who kept thumping your head with the 12 steps, right, as a model of care, then you can have all the experiences, but all you know how to deliver is 12 steps through those experiences, and you miss all the other opportunities of interventions. I think that's a great caveat, right? Like, it's not just about being thrown to the wolves. It's about being thrown to the wolves with, like, a really great mentor or mm -hmm. a really great supervisor yeah. to help you navigate that. Because you, and it's a pretty well-known kind of, I don't know, almost trope in our industry that clinical supervision is always, uh, it's almost like a myth to, in, to some degree. And I mean, again, this goes to the nuance. Like, there are agencies where it is not great, and you do not get good supervision, and, it, and you will not grow, and you will be stuck kind of where you even if you come out of school, you're thrown into the wolves and you're just left there to sort of fend for yourself. And you actually don't grow in that environment either. Just like there are private practice uh, organizations that I'm sure are, are phenomenal, have great supervision, have really, have really passionate, really dedicated people that can help, help you grow in an environment that is maybe less challenging, um, but still nonetheless will allow you to grow as a clinician. I think it's... It's about not being alone, right? Like you have to have guidance through that process. It's nobody knows how to do this right away. You know, it's um, it, it just takes time. And if you have people that can, I, I mean, it's people helping people. It's broken helping broken. It's kind of absurd to a certain degree. And I, that's my own rag on my on my actual 
hmm. you know, like career, basically. But it, it, there's a certain sort of absurdity to it because the, the clinician has to be, is still human, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to, a lot of what we learn is a, really about self-awareness, like Jason spoke to earlier, and how do we show up in certain ways when with certain people in certain situations, and how do we navigate that in a way that allows us to actually develop empathy, create emotional connection, and, and provide good, clear feedback for that individual so that they can kind of move on in their life from wherever they are. Um, it's to do that by yourself after two years of college or two years of a master's program is not a thing. Yeah. Like it just, that's not real. <laughs> you know, you have to have help. You have yeah. to have support. Yeah, it, it has me thinking of, uh, you know, here in Colorado, we have CEUs, con uh, continued education units, right? Mm -hmm. The whole goal behind those, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is certainly that, hey, you're in a private practice, maybe you don't have supervision, but so many hours out of the year, you've got to go and be educated on a topic, and then you sign off on that. Well, the real problem with that feels like that, just like reading Dr. Yalom's book, it provides a lot of opportunities in it, but if you don't have anybody to engage with it, to work on it with, to... Uh, be witness to your improvement and your growth as an opportunity. You can walk into a CEU event, take as much notes as you want to do, but if you don't have anybody to bounce those ideas off of, um, probably not going to arrive at being a, uh, successful, at least in what we were being educated on. Uh, and probably more to the point as well, too, I think clinicians, probably a good amount of them, are just checking CEU boxes and not actually delivering the interventions that in a, in a, in a real informed and meaningful way um, is my major statement. Come at me, industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, the CEU is also designed for that clinician who's been in the field for decades and to keep them fresh, to keep them up to date, to make sure that um, we don't get stagnant, you know, because this is, our field has, any field that isn't dynamic isn't a field. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a theory, right. you know, and so, um, but to your point, like, but if I, but if I'm a clinician, right. Yeah. And I am, I'm for 20 years because maybe out of self-awareness and growth, I'm in recovery myself. I did it through the 12 step model and 12 step is abstinence regardless. Mm -hmm. And now I'm in front of somebody who's requiring medication assisted treatment and there's a CEU event for medication assisted treatment. And I ignore that because it's not sitting within my philosophy. Yeah. Then I'm just going to the CEU events that talk about, you know, 12-step programming within programs or sure. interventions around that, right? Then, I mean, this, I think this is one of the fundamental problems of our industry. We adopt, well, this is the only industry, it's not the only, it's one of a handful of healthcare-sized, uh, healthcare settings in which we can develop our own philosophies about what we think the individual needs in front of us and deploy those. Um, and that seems... I mean, it seems like an extraordinary liability, but that is what is happening on all of our sites. We have these philosophies that we take with us that we think the other individual should have because it worked for me or it worked for the last 10 people I saw in this row. And then that limits our potential for growth and limits us within CEU settings or where we're going to go receive continued education whatsoever. I mean, it's a statement. You know, maybe it's, it's a statement. It's it was question. a statement. I don't, I don't know what the question, question is. Yeah. I, I, I do. Am I wrong? Question. People are stupid. Am I wrong? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just want to slip in and like, reflect back what you said and have you keep talking. That's yeah. like my counselor in me that wants to do that. Uh, I think that, you know, even peaks, though, to a certain degree, like we have our own philosophy, right? Like we're mm -hmm. one of those agencies. 
our philosophy just happens to be that our philosophy is flux, you know? Like, we'll take as many different philosophies as we possibly can and learn from all of them. Mm -hmm. We're not gonna just pick one and hold on to it for dear life. We're, <clears> gonna, <throat> we're gonna take the best of everything that we've found and try mm -hmm. to come, come up with something cohesive. Mm -hmm. But in the end, like you said, just like when you're diagnosing uh, major depressive disorder, you know, you've got 12 criteria, but n no two individuals have meet this, the same criteria in the same way. Right. So to have to try to have one philosophy to, to, to treat this, um, what is a very dynamic diagnosis, makes no sense. Mm -hmm. You know, unless your philosophy is to have, I will use whatever philosophy is necessary, that, that's probably the best philosophy yeah. to have. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, and for us, our vision has been to disrupt an industry through quality of care. And so, you know, in that regards, we are big yeah. at peaks of like, and we've talked about it with, I've talked about it with Joanna Conti and Vista Research and outcome data. Uh, for the last 30 years, our industry is 30% or lower or just flat as regards to outcomes in that regard. So our philosophy at peaks is like, just throw everything out with the kitchen sink in that regard and let's pull anything and everything in as possible to make this as big as possible for the individual that we're in front of to move outcomes in a direction that you know, is viable. And I think the power behind that is that it feels like the old philosophies, the ingrained things, we're gonna do six hours of group, one individual session, and we're gonna sprinkle meds on them and somehow that's gonna to lead to the outcome. At the bottom of every algorithmic page that we treat depression, if you get to the bottom of it, it'll say something about depression like we throw a med at it and we do some counseling along the way and we're hopeful at that point. That is an old way of doing things. Going back to Dr. Alardi's model, that is not a spiderweb concept. You know, let's throw the TMS, mm -hmm. ketamine if it's necessary. You know, let's throw the counseling, let's get some exercise, let's get probiotics, let's get nutrition in there. Let's do all of those things and see if something sticks, if not multiple things. But we, what we know per the outcomes is not sticking is a med and therapy delivered with one individual session a week and six hours of group per day mm -hmm. in a room where people are also not there for major depression, but there for substance use disorder primaries. Right. And out of that philosophy, I think our industry has gotten really hopeful about a co-occurring disorder and a guessing game that, okay, you say you have depression, but you smoked two pot two days ago. I think the pot's causing the depression, right? And I think that is where I just want to acknowledge what I mean when I talk about these select philosophies versus just having this all sort of in approach. Because at yeah. this point, we know we can always do one individual session in six hours group you know, a day, and we know what those outcomes are. And so it feels like we have nothing to lose by adding more. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I guess, I don't, this only feels like it loosely ties to what you're saying, but like I, I do feel like fundamentally so much of our philosophy is so intangible mm -hmm. because it is about building community with our clients and having our clients build community and that connection, and it's hard to measure that. Yeah. And so it's hard to standardize it, right? Like we could try to take this philosophy and drop it into a different program, but like you have to have the right people doing right. it because like... That's a genuine thing. Like, I think people being genuine, that extends beyond our clinical team. I think, I think our best employees are those that are truly showing up doing what they love. And if you talk to our medical and housing and, and admissions and all of our departments, they're doing what they love from they're being genuinely themselves in their role. That's hard to measure and it's hard to, to, to I don't know, put out there. Yeah. It's it, hard to put in a book. It's hard yeah. to put in a book. It's hard to, and, and science needs it to be replicable, right? Like they need to say, this is how you 
plug this in and go do this and maybe we need to figure out how to write that down but like that's difficult to do because it's so intangible yeah well and we work in a managed care setting to yeah. be absolutely clear we have all these downward pressures absolutely. and requirements from insurance companies some of them are good because they protect against things like liabilities and ensure that there's actually services being rendered and it's not just all hocus pocus for the individual uh, you know but at the same time i feel like the defeating aspect of agency work is the schooling systems are doing a terrible job at conveying the value of the DSM-5. There's no documentation standard requirements for most schools uh, throughout the country. I've rarely, except out of like the Hazelden Network, I think they're big on documentation, but as an example to be charitable to institutions. But you know, at the same time, so you pull these people out who you guys are describing to me come out of school with this like authenticity and I need to meet the client where they're at, I need to build rapport and those things have an incredible amount of value. Okay, now I need you to document all that. Mm -hmm. Well, how do I document those intangibles because that's really what we're experiencing in the room and they get defeated real quick in the process because it's like, well, you have to put the medical intervention in there. Like, nobody realistically, I think, call me out if I'm wrong, is sitting in an individual therapy session like, oh, I'm about to smash this person with some DBT, some dialectal behavioral therapy. Yeah. Here it comes, like fast you, pitch, right? You would be surprised. Yeah, we, yeah. some of, but like to your point though, it isn't <laughs> 60 minutes of it, right? Yeah. Right, like yeah. of, here's how you do wise mind and let's practice that. Like, I think, or like taking it out of the tool belt, like I got a DBT here, I got some CBT, I got yeah. some of this, and like, okay, here we go. Okay, yeah. you're talking, I'm thinking, well, I'm gonna use yeah. this tool, yeah. like, yeah. you know. I think at the beginning, yes, actually. Yeah. There's yeah. some very, you, there's like a sort of attachment to your, your favorite intervention, and people are like, oh, I'm a CBT therapist. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> no. If you are, then you should stop. Like, you don't do that anymore. It's, I think, this is the, I mean, this is the thing about our field, right? Like, it is, we live in a world of gray. Like, mm -hmm. it is a messy thing that we do. And if you can't get comfortable being messy, then you're probably not gonna be very successful. Um, we want things to be very clean and very organized and very easy to um, sort of encapsulate and replicate. And this is mental health. Like, this is behavioral health. This is people. People are not those things. Mm -hmm. Like, we are very, very dynamic. Yep. And it's, um, it's why our philosophy has to be dynamic, right? Like, and that's really, as a company, what we are. Like, we, we recognize the importance of allowing ourselves to, to explore as many options are as, are as absolutely necessary because no two treatments that, no two patients that come to our, uh, that come to our facility, while they will have a standard level of care, like a fundamental level of care that ensures that they're, again, not getting the hocus pocus, they will individually have their own experience and their own treatment trajectory. But we have to create an environment in which that happens, which is again, another intangible space. Mm -hmm. Like how do you, you have to create a culture in which that allows that to happen. How do you encapsulate a culture? You mm -hmm. know, like how do you do that? How do you replicate that? There are, um, it's, it, once you, you, the smaller you try to get, the bigger the picture becomes. You know? And um, I don't know, I just think it's one of those, if you can embrace the messy, then you're okay you know, then I, I think that you're gonna be fine. But if you're looking for something very clear and very clean, it's, it's not gonna happen. Yeah. Then you should probably go to private practice. <laughs> you should probably go to private practice. Treat the well-worried. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, I, 
I know that I've got like 100 different things to say, like, you know, how do you find, for example, right, the right clinician in a geographically limited location like Vail, Colorado? What do you think the population of Vail, Colorado is like? Like four, five. Like four or five people yeah, yeah. living in million dollar homes, <laughs> yeah. yet there's a 110 bed, you know, facility out there somewhere uh, in Colorado. And like, how do you get talent in such a small town that is so unaffordable to live in to treat the individuals that you say you can serve at the end of the day? Yes. I'm coming at you industry uh, in this regard. Uh, but at the same time, I'm always dedicated to giving families the information to challenge this industry so that we shape up and we show up in the way that we say we do on each and every one of our websites at the end of the day. So tangent aside, take us out, gentlemen. Maybe like top five bullet points, what you think, how do we arrive at becoming the best possible therapist? And maybe it is your journey that describes those bullet points rather than you know pointing at others. I. It Man, that's off the top of my head. I, I, I've listed a fair amount of them, and, and having my own genuineness feels like such a key part. Like you're asking about my personal journey to be here. Like I think, uh, it, and I think it's Sit all these—it's all these things that we, yeah, <laughs> brace yourself. Yeah. It's all these words that we say, like this holding space and and creating a culture and a community. It's all these intangible things. And he, I even like to say that, like, you know, like uh, the people who wrote came up with cognitive therapy, Ellis, I think, and, and Fritz Perls with Gestalt, and all these guys created um, these theories of counseling, but it was them being themselves. And Yalom and all of his work, that's truly just Yalom being himself. And then we try to, like, figure out how to incorporate it in. And so to your point, like, I don't think our job is to create little yalams or little freezmas, as we have liked to say. It's to empower our clinicians at Peaks to find, like, to be genuinely themselves. Because, you know, and, and this is something that I did appreciate about the grad school I went to. We talked about how, like, the clinician is actually the agent of change. Like, all these interventions are really important and helpful, but, like, we have to be the ones that can figure out the intervention and also just hold the space and find the problem. Yeah. Uh, we can have all the best interventions in the world, but if we can't sit with a person and really begin to track down what the issue is, it doesn't matter what our interventions are. Um, that's my first thought. I would, that, that wasn't five bullet points, but that's my thought. Quentin. Hmm. Uh, I think... Sense of humor, too, by the way. <laughs> the <one. laughs> just throw that in there. Yeah, lob yeah. that in there. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta be able to tell jokes. Yeah, yeah you really have funny to, ones. Really funny jokes. Did, do you know any? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got, I got a joke. Uh, <laughs> um, I think ninety percent of being a good therapist is just being a, a decent person. Yeah, like being able to sit down and listen, and just like you said, hold space. Mm -hmm. Like just be there with an individual and actually not try to do anything. Just allow people to be themselves. Uh, we don't do that enough for each other in this world. Yeah. We don't sit and just be with each other. There's always an agenda. And if you can go into, even though there is like an actual literal purpose and um, place, you're trying to go from point A to point B when, as soon as you walk into a counseling session, if you can walk in there without an agenda, you're in a great space because it's going to become organic. And it's going to, um, and then you're going to allow, you will start to show up in a way that is very real. And that, and we'll start to develop that therapeutic bond and relationship. Um, and if you can make that connection, man, like all of this, I think when you talked about interventions and like you don't go in there thinking, I'm gonna use this, I'm gonna use that, I'm gonna use that. And the truth is, you, 
I think in the beginning you do, but after a while, you, what ends up happening is you just sort of organically use these intervention strategies. They just become a part of your, they, they become a part of the way in which you communicate with people. And it's in upon reflection that you're like, you think back and you're like, oh yeah, I used some CBT there when I was talking to him about that. Oh yeah, that was, I threw in a DBT skill, just kind of a little underhand right there, just kind of in the middle when they started to dysregulate a little bit. You know, all of these little things become very organic and they become very much a part of the process. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this very difficult act of letting go of being a counselor. And it, I think once you let go of this idea that I'm a counselor, you've become one. <laughs> Kind of weird. That's paradox. That was right. good. Yeah, that that was love paradox. it. Yeah. So the answer is a paradox. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what these uh, guys, in my experience, are illuminating here today as well too is that the world has been hard on the individuals that we serve at Peaks Recovery Center. Sometimes that's not obvious to the family systems, right? It's like oh, we gave them everything. I don't understand what the problem is here. But in some way, shape, or form, it could be. And that's the. I think when you. For the viewers out there, they're gonna go download, audiobook, whatever, The Boy Was Raised as a Dog. When you read that book, you, the, there's a couple really uh, sensitive pieces of you know, material in there that convey like real physical abuse um, in a profound way. But also at the same time, what's challenging about the book is the abuses are just these moments of neglect, these missed opportunities to be a human with a baby human. You know, an individual is two to four years old and it creates all of these problems for the individual. And so, the individuals that come to Peaks, I think, are used to being on their heels, used to being defensive, used to feeling like the world is throwing everything at them and then they're, they're depleted. So they come in with a sense of distrust. And so showing up in that way that you guys are describing those intangibles, like the first thing I'm gonna do in this room with you, here's my tool belt, I'm gonna put it on the side, I'm just gonna be a human with you. Because mm -hmm. if we can't be relational together, you're never gonna give me any insights. You're never gonna tell me where you've come from. I'm gonna be just like the world is as you came into Peaks. Fair? Absolutely fair. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well played. Well said. And experience matters. <laughs> For sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Meaningful experience. Meaningful matters. experiences, yeah. right? Kind being on a team, knowing, you know, being able to, pat, you get better in team environments, right? I think overall that's true mm -hmm. in sports. It's true in professional settings mm -hmm. as well, too. The idea to bounce ideas off each other. Um, and I know, like, our team is probably, you know, going to watch this in the background and be like, there Brandon is hitting on the private practices <laughs> again. But... Private practices are of absolute value, um, but there is greater value in them when individuals, I think, who arrive at them go through these experiences and get all of these uh, individuals with different backgrounds, diagnoses, and so forth in front of them, and it gives them an opportunity to better serve future individuals through this collaborative effort. So um, I guess I'll just take us out here, because okay. maybe that was a mic drop moment. I don't know, yeah. you tell us. Was it a mic drop <laughs> moment? <laughs> Finding Peaks at peaksrecovery.com. Coover, that's for you to do the, the digital stuff. We'll see if we can make it happen. Otherwise, thank you all so much for being a part of this today, uh, with us again today. It's always a pleasure to bring these things forward. Hopefully you can hear our passion. Hopefully we're not trying to discourage people from pursuing these things, but give insights into what you might be thinking about as a family system when you go to find an addiction treatment setting, a behavioral health setting of any sort, like what is the actual capacity for a treatment program to deliver these services that their website says they can do? Um, and just to be equipped with those tools at the end of the day, because you, your loved one, friend, spouse, otherwise, um, life is 
in a state of suffering in that moment. And mm -hmm. it's just so important that the services are real and that we have the capacity to deliver on those promises that we make to you all each and every day uh, when you call our admissions line. So thank you for being here with us again today. Uh, find us on the Facebook, the TikToks, Chris Burns, doing the heart pounding stuff, all that sort of stuff, a lot of energy, love him. Uh, grateful for him. I believe Jason Friesma is host next week I am. of Finding Peaks. Uh, so tune in next week for the freeze, and yeah. we will see you all then. Thank you.